This is a phenomenal section of scripture. It's a privilege to be able to dig into it today. And I hope we grasp the riches of this particular text. The scene opens with the problem of a closed book. It centers on a scroll that's in God's right hand, and it's wrapped up with seven seals. It's written on both sides of the paper, uh, but it's wrapped up and sealed, and no one can open the scroll. John's reaction to this situation gives us a little bit of the feel for how dramatic this is, how much of a problem it is that there's a book that's sealed, can't be opened. In verse 4, John is said to weep and weep. This is not just a little tear trickling down his face. This is a full-on sob, a full-on mourning for the problem that he sees when he knows this book is sealed up. The scroll is of central importance it's critical that it be open, and everyone wants to, get, to know what's in it. The drama that's unfolding is a huge dilemma, and we see this because there's a mighty angel, a pretty strong angel, who's uh, asking the question, who is worthy to open the book, to take apart the seals so that it can be opened? A thorough search is made, and they look high and low for someone who can make uh, the, the book open. Verse 3 tells us that but no one in heaven and on earth and under the earth could open the scroll and look inside. Nobody's there who can solve the problem. Why so, such intense emotion? Why exhaustive search to find somebody who can open the seals and break the contents open of this book? John's reaction is not weeping because he wants to know what's in the book or, or that he knows what's in the book. He doesn't know yet, and we won't know either because that's next week. His reaction is to what the book represents. Where is the book? It's in the right hand of God who is seated on the throne. The right hand is the hand of power, the hand that acts, the hand that makes things happen. And so part of John's weeping in this closed book, the problem with a book that can't be opened is the problem of, will God ever do anything? Will his purposes ever be worked out? Will the things that we long for actually occur? There's no one worthy to execute his purposes. That's what opening the book means. The tension is intense. John weeps because it bring, he brings to the throne room all sorts of concerns and cares and issues that he longs for God to solve. He has great questions that he would love to have answered. The unopened scroll represents the absence of a solution to the things he brings with him that he longs for God to do, to make action, to accomplish. John's context, we know from what he's told us this far and what we know about his situation, is he's, he's deeply concerned. Will the church be able to survive the Roman persecution that's happening right now. It's that which has exiled him on this island. He brings with him the needs of a church for all the help that they need, for the struggles of daily life, for health, for provision, for their deliverance from sin and the failures of their life to be faithful to the calling that they have as believers. We've seen a little bit of that in the message to all the churches Will they be able to overcome? Will they be able to f function and survive effectively as God calls them? And we too live with the problem of a closed book. 
we don't see all the time how God's working. We feel like the, the book's closed in terms of giving us some answers about a lot of things that we would long to know, that we would long to see God moving and acting and doing. What God's will is, is closed to us in many ways. And it's difficult to live with the uncertainty of when and if he will act. Often it seems like the book will just remain closed and no answer will come to those things that we long for. In talking with those that face illnesses and they don't know exactly why that illness is happening or people that are having tests done and they have to wait sometimes a week or more to get the test results, it's excruciating. And what you hear them often say is uh, the uncertainty is driving me crazy. The worst thing about it is not knowing. If I could just know what is happening and to make sense of what's going on, I would feel so much better. We are desperate to know where we stand, to make sense of our world, uh, to be able to understand our situation and part of what uh, may uh, lie ahead for us. It's so stressful for us during this pandemic. It's one of those underlying uh, stresses that we feel every day. When, is th when are things going to change? When can things get back to where they should be and where uh, a normal life would exist? For the next couple of weeks, we're going to be uh, in that place every single day of uncertainty until the election happens. We want to know what's going to happen and what the effect of that choice on election day will mean. Beneath, though, all the longings that we have, sometimes we aren't fully aware of the depth of what we are really longing for. We uh, crave an answer and more certainty because beneath those surface concerns, as significant as they are, are deep longings for something more comprehensive that we need. Our yearning for relief from pain, for health, carries with it a deeper desire for more pervasive healing, for healing from that impending death that lies ahead for each one of us. Our longing for justice and peace is a craving for lasting justice and a peace that's not going to be fragile or temporary. When we get in touch with that longing, that deep, deep need, we're in the place that John finds itself. And we're led to weep as well. We are led to lament and be pouring out our hearts before, the God, uh, before God because that deep longing is a calling that God has placed within us for wholeness, for what the Bible calls shalom, completeness, full flourishing. We long for deep and full resolution to all the problems in our lives and in our world. Our deepest longings are pleading for a savior because we don't have it in us to pull it off ourselves. We can't open the book. We can't make what we long for happen. So the next step in this vision is the revealing of a savior. One of the elders quickly responds to John's weeping and tells him to stop. The creatures around the throne are not weeping. Why? Because they have been in the presence of God and they know the lamb that's going to be revealed. They know God's control and power and they understand, they've seen the answer that we long for. But the elder helps John to see true reality, to see things the way that everyone in that place in heaven are seeing. He shows him the Savior. In verse 5, he says, See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. 
He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The identity of the Savior is first revealed to him as this lion. The description of is uh, one that he would immediately hear because he knows his Old Testament. And sometimes we need a little help to grasp the vision that he would see immediately. The lion of Judah from the tribe of Judah is referring back to Genesis 49 when Jacob uh, blessed all of his sons. And he pronounces a blessing which is a prophecy about what they would um, actually be and do, what kind of character, what kind of life they would uh, end up living. And it extends beyond his own 12 sons all the way to this lion that we are looking at here in this chapter. The lion of Judah is described as one uh, in this pronouncement of blessing is one who would have supremacy over his brothers. And he would be the one, as it's quoted there, that the scepter would not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nation shall be his. This is a picture of a powerful person who would reign over all the peoples of the earth. He would bring about a rightness and justice in that reign. All the enemies of God would be defeated, and not only would Israel be, re, be uh, rejoicing in the kingly reign of this descendant of Judah, but all the nations as well. The second reference is to the root of Jesse, to the root of David, and it takes us to uh, uh, much of Isaiah's prophecy uh, and other places, but uh, chapter 11 is a beautiful picture of what uh, is, would come immediately to John's mind. The root of David is a descendant from King David himself. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. This is a, uh, a descendant of David. Uh, Jesse is David's father, who would be different from his brothers. He would bear much fruit. And uh, there's a description of who he would be uh, as this wise and understanding ruler, having the spirit of the Lord dwelling on him. And he wouldn't be the same as his brothers, uh, as his previous Davidic um, house. He would be one who is superior in terms of his righteousness and his justice. He would be one who judges the needy um, with righteousness. And with justice, he would make decisions for the poor of the earth. He wouldn't just be a power-hungry leader, but one who understands the needs of those who are oppressed and downtrodden. And he would be one who wears righteousness like a belt and faithfulness around his waist. That key characteristics of righteousness and faithfulness. And then what he would accomplish by this righteous reign, this powerful reign, would be the, the uh, peacemaking between warring parties that exist on the earth. And you know this uh, phrase of uh, the calf and the lion lying down. Together, the, ch the little child will lead them, uh, the child playing at the cobra's uh, den, the wolf and the lamb together. It's a picture of sworn enemies being brought to a place of peace and harmony and unity. This is what uh, the picture of the Lion of Judah and the Root of Jesse, the Root of David means. A powerful ruler who comes to make all things right, to bring true righteousness, justice, and peace by his powerful reign. The vision of this uh, divine powerful ruler is one that uh, presents a picture of 
the answer to everything that we long for, to having everything be made right, to heal the wounds and the brokenness and the divisions of this world. But just after we've taken in this powerful, victorious Savior, uh, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, we see an incredible contrast. The Lion is now a Lamb. John looks in verse 6 and he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. It's a picture of Jesus who's both lion and lamb. And this turn should just shock us, um, as it did many of those who saw Jesus in his day, who lived out this lion-lamb combination. This is the heart of the Christian gospel that we see here presented in Revelation the good news that is so incredible, the one who is powerful to bring about the righteous change, the righteous reign that is full of justice and mercy and peace and goodness, where everything is put back together, does so through suffering and death. What we learn from the opening of this book and its seals, what we'll see next week, is that all humanity and creation are falling apart because of our rebellion towards God. Every kind of problem and every kind of calamity is going to be named, not only in this vision, but in visions to come throughout Revelation that are describing our daily life of those who have uh, rebelled against the way that God has made us and designed us, and consequently, the world is deteriorating. But what happens? The powerful one doesn't come in judgment. He comes in mercy to die in our place, to take all of the calamity on himself, to take our brokenness and the destruction that we cause because of our rebellion and sin upon himself. And he pays our debt. He goes to death so that he uh, takes away our sin, takes away our brokenness, takes away that which is wounded and broken in this world. He dies in our place so that we might live, that we might be freed from that brokenness to sing a new song. And that's where the, the song, uh, this uh, passage takes us. In verse 9, we see this gracious redeeming act is celebrated. With your blood you purchased for God persons of every tribe and language and people and nation. The reign of the lion who is subduing all the nations and bringing them into obedience is accomplished by the work of the lamb. It doesn't come through power and conquest, He doesn't bring us into a a place of obedience out of coercion or just throwing law at us. He comes serving us, dying for us, taking away what is wrong and broken in us and making all things new. That is the lion who is the lamb uh, that we rejoice to celebrate as this uh, passage unfolds. Corey has said many times throughout the series that this vision of reality that we're seeing in this particular section, that the Savior is a lion and a lamb, it may not change our circumstances in this immediate moment, but it certainly changes our perspective in this immediate moment. We're invited into the joy of heaven that the book is opened, that God is acting and he's going to make all things right. It answers all our present questions uh, in, um, it doesn't answer all our present questions in the way that we would like, but it answers the ultimate question that we ask. Is God going to act? Will he accomplish the things that we long for? 
The lion who is the lamb is the ultimate answer to all the deep cravings and longings that we have for God to make all things new, to make us new. The opening of the scroll and its seven seals is more about the identity of the Savior, of this lion who is a lamb, and what he does to carry out God's purpose, to act on behalf of the right hand of God, to bring about what we need, our salvation, than it is about the specifics of seven seals, as we'll see. This vision that we're studying right now uh, Two weeks we've been talking about just a vision of God on the throne, the Lamb on the throne, and we're going to end with a multitude worshiping the Lamb on the throne. So what do we do in response to this revealing of our Savior, the Lion who is in the Lamb? Uh, we respond by singing a new song. As the, after the Lion who is a Lamb is revealed uh, as the one who can open the book and the seals, Three new songs are sung in successive uh, crescendoing, widening circles of participation and vigor and loudness. First, it's the four living creatures and the 24 elders who fall down before the Lamb to sing this new song in verse 8. Then they're joined by the voice of many angels, numbering thousands and thousands and ten thousands of ten thousands. That's a way of saying as many as you can count, beyond what you can count. It's myriads of, of creatures now worshiping the Lamb along with the elders and the living creatures in verse 11. And the third song, it's like the grand finale to the Hallelujah Chorus. Uh, every living creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, that's every single place that any creature exists, are wholeheartedly joining in the new song of praise and honor to the Lamb. The scene is an ever-increasing crescendo of worship and praise, all proclaiming, centering on the, the Lamb who is on the throne, who is in a place of power, who is exercising the uh, work of God on the earth. The content of the song is all about the Lamb. It's not about anything else. It's about honoring Him, adoring Him, celebrating and praising Him. And from this, we learn that worship is, the, uh, is, is at heart seeing the Lamb, uh, seeing God through the lens of the Lamb and valuing Him. We have said before, worship is formative. It centers and reorients us. It gives us the perspective that we need to negotiate and make sense of this world. Worship is healing. When our, arts, our hearts are given a clear perspective on the one who is above all valuable and worth adoring and praising and attributing a value to, uh, worth submitting to, worth worshiping, worth giving our lives to, our hearts are reformed. Our loves that are bent and misshapen get straightened out. That's what worship does for us. It's fundamental and critical to our being. So how do we join in singing a new song? We don't need to be an excellent singer like our team up here, uh, but we can sing a new song in two ways. First, we can sing a new song by regularly and personally and corporately worshiping God. And I'll just make a couple of suggestions. I know you know kind of what that means, but just to emphasize two things. First, that what we see in this passage is uh, we ought to be bringing the deep longings of our heart. So every time you come to private time with the Lord, 
Bring your deep longings to him. Know that you desperately need a Savior who can open that book, who will act on God's behalf. And you bring those deep longings to him, uh, craving and yearning and pleading with him for his work of salvation, his work of redemption. And to keep craving and keep longing, even though you don't get all the answers that you might want. And secondly, this, this passage just tells us, underlines over and over again, this is not just a private affair. Uh, every bit of the worship here is of a crescendo of volumes of people coming to center their lives and to join together in wor- making a, a wor- worship of the Lord, uh, who is the lion and the lamb. We desperately need to join together. And I want to just suggest two things. Number one, uh, it's critical, even uh, in the distance distance situation that we find ourselves even now, to know that you are together worshiping with God's people. You need to imagine them there, uh, in a sense like Hebrews 12, see that great cloud of witnesses that surround you as you worship. They may not be physically present with you, but the worship of God's people is happening, and we join together in that. Take advantage of every opportunity, whether it be with family members or with friends, to uh, join together in honoring and worshiping the Lamb. We desperately need the encouragement and the support of joining together in a corporate way. So that's first, worship him regularly and uh, bring your concerns and needs to him. But secondly, we follow the way of the lamb by taking up our cross and following him. This is one way we could describe it as living the lamb's way. We've seen that Jesus came to serve and give up his life for many. He took the path of weakness and suffering and death to defeat all our enemies and to bring about this great reign of peace and justice and righteousness. We are to follow him. So I'd encourage us to rehearse the way of Jesus, the way of the Lamb. Remind yourself of that song that is singing a song of the Lamb's way. Tell yourself uh, uh, there's just multitudes of passages you can use. I'll throw out a couple. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself take up their cross and follow me. Remind yourself of that truth. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast and all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, we should delight in our weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions and difficulties. For when we are weak, then we are strong. Live the Lamb's way. That's a way to sing the new song. Um, And it's in that living the Lamb's way that often people are going to have the Lamb revealed to them. And I'll just tell one quick story, one of my favorite stories. Uh, Becky Pippert, many of you may have heard of her, uh, used to be an InterVarsity staff worker. Uh, She tells the story of trying to share the good news to help reveal the lion who's the Lamb to a friend of hers who lived next door. She worked really hard caring for her. Good relationship was built many times of actually talking over the truths of the gospel and sharing those truths with her. No result. But one night, Becky came home hurting because she'd lost her mother. And uh, she'd been through a long ordeal, and she was just spent. She was exhausted. 
She was down, discouraged, and crying. And her friend saw her and said, Becky, what's the matter? And they uh, went into her apartment and started to have a conversation. And that evening, Becky just poured out her heart. She just was herself and said how much she was struggling, how exhausted she was, how much she had questions about what God was doing, uh, how painful it was to lose a loved one, even asking some of the questions aloud that, uh, sh that we all ask at times like that. Uh, why did God take her? Why do I have uh, this loss in my life? And uh, it was that result that months later, uh, the girl finally shared with her, uh, Becky, it wasn't your great job of sharing the gospel that brought me to know Jesus, but it was that night I could, for, for the first time, I could actually see how Jesus actually was real to you. I could see how he made a difference in your life because you showed me through your struggle, through your questions, through your pain, that God was real, that Jesus was meeting you and helping you in the midst of those struggles and those questions and that pain. So we're to sing a new song. The question for us today is, will you be amazed in fresh ways that lead you to a fresh new song? By seeing the lion who is a lamb, seeing both the powerful God who has gone through the path of suffering and weakness and death to bring about the result of remaking life, remaking our world and answering all the deep needs that we pour out to him. Will you see him and will you worship him fully? Let's pray together. Lord, we want to join that powerful crescendo celebration of honoring the Lamb. We want to see you more clearly as the one who is uh, both powerful and merciful, uh, who is uh, full of strength and yet comes in weakness, who is full of um, truth and righteousness, but is also near in mercy and love. Lord, help us to see you as you are so that we might give you honor and worship, have our lives reoriented around the truth of who you are, and find ourselves singing a new song, both in the way that we see you and know you and worship you, and in the way that we live, living out the way of the Lamb. Lord, we look for you, to you for these things, and thank you that you've opened the book and that you have acted on behalf of God to solve the deepest needs that we have. We rejoice in these things and give you praise and honor through the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.